When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Christian Blood, KTSA News, and now it's time for the Jack Riccardi Show. Never been so glad to see 44 degrees. Boy, you're telling me. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's like it's like we're having a tropical vacation. So, anyway. Uh, good afternoon. Welcome to our dreadful little show on 550 and 107.1 KTSA. I had an epiphany uh, about uh, this whole Hunter Biden story. Uh, this may sound weird to you, but I'm just going to tell you. I've been trying to figure out what's wrong with me because, uh, you know, I do this radio talk show and Hunter Biden is, you know, all over talk radio. And I, I just I have a very hard time talking about it. I hate talking about it. And I realized this morning why I and you need to know this. I hate talking about Hunter Biden because it forces me to confront that we have made his father president. This is this is where we're at. I, I, he is a symptom of where we're at. This family, we have put this. You know, yesterday we were talking about merit, right, and the whole idea of meritocracy. This this family is at the tippity top, the 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 peak, the pinnacle of American life. What does that say about us? I mean. I, you know, we'll, we'll get into the nuts and bolts of this in a minute, but, but honestly, and, and we are going to talk about it, but I, I really, I hate to, I hate to think about where we're at. I hate to think that people elected this guy. I, I, I mean, just, I would like to take the 81 million by the lapels and just shake them. You know, anyway, enough about that. Enough about me. Sure, Jack. Um, you know, for the last couple of years, we have, um, been set up for this moment. This moment being that today Hunter Biden is a victim. He is a victim of theft. He is a victim of invasion of privacy. He's like one of those people you see on a LifeLock commercial. How dare people read his emails? We've been set up for this. They told us the laptop was Russian disinformation, was Russian plant. Well, now he's saying that the laptop is his, but it was taken without his permission. So what happened to the previous story? What happened to all the anchor people who looked like they were sucking on a lemon for two years, telling us Russian disinformation, be careful? People who weren't careful at all about the Steele dossier urged caution about a laptop that was full of Hunter Biden, that was left at a repair shop with a work order signed by Hunter Biden, with a a guy uh, who witnessed Hunter Biden walk in and give him the laptop, Mac Isaac, who, by the way, Hunter Biden is now suing, along with a bunch of other people. So now he's the victim. He's been violated. He's going after Mac Isaac. He's going after Rudy Giuliani. He's going after Tucker Carlson. He's going after Fox News. He's got lawyers. 
I don't give him a lot of chances on this, and we're going to talk to our law expert uh, coming up, but I, I don't give him a lot of chances on this because there's a thing called discovery, which will not go well for Hunter Biden if he really wants to pursue this in court. But back to the laptop. What's on the laptop are the emails that he wrote. And one of them, for example, was written in 2014. And it's um, this is, of course, when Joe Biden was vice president. And it's a very detailed, almost wonky email about U.S. policy and Ukraine. It's not like his other lap, uh, his other emails where he's, you know, talking about Coke and broads. This is like a briefing paper, which makes you think that maybe it came from a briefing paper. Like maybe he found it in the garage. Or maybe the big guy tells him stuff. That's why this is important. And everything they're going to say now that he feels violated and he's been He's been uh, slandered. That's all a distraction. You know, one thing I was thinking today, I don't know if they can do this or not, this special counsel should be comparing, it seems to me, the classified documents that were mishandled and found in Biden's possession, Joe Biden's possession, with uh, emails and references on Hunter's emails. Is it possible to show that there's a connection between the two? I don't know if there is. It seems like something they should look at. Byron York has made the point that three scandals converge on the Hunter Biden laptop, the classified documents, the Biden family business, and the suppression of the New York Post's reporting on the laptop leading up to the 2020 election campaign. But the most important thing is not Hunter Biden or his laptop. The most important thing, says Andy McCarthy today, is this. When Barack Obama made his vice president, Joe Biden, the point man for U.S. policy regarding authoritarian regimes like China and Russia and notoriously corrupt regimes like Ukraine, why did agents of those regimes believe it was in their interest to pay millions of dollars to the Biden family? Stop. That's it. Obama picks his vice president somebody he has previously referenced as not being the brightest bulb in the chandelier, to be the point man on China and Russia. And then the Biden family starts making a ton of money in those countries. What were they buying? Or what did they think they were buying? And this is where you have to be careful about not getting lost in the weeds. Because a lot of people want something, uh, you know, they, they, they want, they want, uh, uh, culpability or they want a perp walk or they want Hunter Biden in orange jumpsuit. But w- what's more important, what's more important is what were these countries buying and what did they get for the money they spent? And that's why this is important. Um, I don't think that Hunter Biden is going to, uh, be able to um, claim that this was misinformation. You know, usually, and I don't know if it was true with this computer repair shop, but usually when you drop off something like that and you sign the work order, 
There's a bunch of boilerplate language. It might be on the back or it might be attached to it or it might be on a sign in the business. But a lot of businesses operate this way. You've got, even like dry cleaners operate this way. You've got X number of days, weeks, months to reclaim your item or you forfeit it. And he didn't reclaim his laptop, which now he is clearly saying is his after telling us for two years it might not be. I don't know if it is, he said in interviews. And and, and Joe Biden said that too. Russian disinformation, the media told us. But see, everything they're saying today makes it sound like they're very certain it's their laptop. So the legal status of the laptop, did he abandon it at the computer repair shop? And... um. Did it become abandoned property, in which case it can be claimed, it can be sold, it can be given away, it can be destroyed. Businesses do these things. It would be interesting to know if that was the policy and if that policy was made known to him or if that was on something he signed. I don't know. Now, why would they be all of a sudden flipping from it's not his or it might not be his or it's Russian disinformation to, gosh damn it, we, that's my laptop and you people aren't supposed to be looking at it and I'm going to sue you. How do we get to that point all of a sudden? Well, what changed recently? Bueller? Anybody? Exactly. And I don't know what the Republicans are going to do. I don't know how good they're going to be. I don't know how great the follow-through is going to be. You know, you know, if there's any, if there's ever been a political party that could snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, these are the guys. But suddenly there's a lot less, shall we say, um, shall we say there's a lot less comfort uh, for the Bidens. So he's bringing threats of civil lawsuits and the disclosure of embarrassing private facts and so forth. And we'll see where that goes. We'll talk about that. Now, the other thing that's going on that's kind of interesting here is um, the House Republicans are saying that when they checked with the National Archives on the documents recovered from Joe Biden, they weren't allowed to talk about it. The National Archives told, allegedly told Republicans, we have been told not to talk about it. And so this came up at the um, White House briefing with Corinne Jean-Pierre yesterday. Cut number four. Listen to this. Did anyone at the White House tell the National Archives at any point not to issue a press release about the discovery of classified documents? I would, I would really refer you to the White House Counsel's Office, who has been running this process, right. and refer you even to them. If, even if it's something that's not just in their purview, it would be wider with that entire White House? Because this is, when it, when it relates to the DOJ, when it relates to special counsel, this is something that's been under their purview, so I would refer you to them. Hmm. Okay. Um, so let's swing it over to the White House Counsel's Office. Also yesterday, this is uh, Associate White House Counsel Ian Sams, cut number three. 
Anyone at the White House at any point tell the National Archives in any form that they could not release a press release about the discovery of classified documents? Uh, what are you, what's that in reference to? There's reporting that came from the House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer who says that in his conversations with the National Archives, they communicated that they were told, the Archives was told it could not release a press release at whatever point it was about the discovery of classified documents. Did anyone at the White House tell them not to do that? Yeah, I don't know anything about that. I, if that's actually what he said, it's probably better to ask the archives if that's actually what was said and, and try to understand a little bit more what he meant. Yeah, Josh, and, and, and just and my, that's pretty good. This guy's a lawyer. That's pretty good. So she says you'll have to check with the lawyer. The lawyer asked a question about whether did you guys direct the National Archives not to talk says you would have to ask the National Archives. The question contains the answer. They're not allowed to talk. So I don't know, but it sounds like the Biden administration is treating the National Archives like they own it. And remember, when Trump was in trouble with his classified documents, we heard all of this pious talk, all this sermonizing about the uh, the National Archives being the proper repository. It's the people's uh, you know, library or the people's filing cabinet and how dare Trump keep things from the National Archives. Well, if the National Archives is the right place for this stuff and to be respected and revered, then why are the Bidens leaning on them? Which is what it sounds like they're doing. Half the time I think Corinne Jean-Pierre has no clue and the other half the time I think she might be twice as smart as all of us. I don't, I don't know, but th- this is all very circular. Again, and I agree with Andy McCarthy, I think just try to keep your eye, like when you do the vision test and they say stare at the little dot, keep your eye on this question. What were foreign governments giving the Biden family money for? All this other stuff is either either important and related to that or is a distraction from that. But that's what matters. And I'll tell you one other thing before we go to your phone calls. You may not like this. Somebody has to say it. If we're serious about looking at what foreign governments were buying from the Biden family, then we have to also be serious about what foreign governments have been paying lots of politicians for for a long time. The Saudis are into a lot of politicians of both parties. The Chinese are into a lot of politicians of both parties. Just to name two. I want to, I'm, I'm willing to rip the band-aids off all these things. I don't care where the chips fall. I don't care if it turns out that the Republicans were worse than the Democrats. But right now, Biden's president. Right now, it, it affects the national security of the country profoundly and in a way no one else does. If they have bought him or they think they have. Yeah, the thing about the, the Biden family. I'm not going to call this the Hunter Biden story or the Biden Hunter Biden laptop story. This is about who owns, who bought into, who paid off the Biden family. It looks to me the evidence is circumstantial, but substantial that there is uh, a history of the Bidens quote unquote doing business. And remember now, these are not people that have ever done anything but politics. So when I hear about people that have spent their entire life in politics suddenly doing business, like what is the business? I mean, I talk for a living. I, I'll, I'll be honest. I don't have any other business. I don't make stuff, produce stuff, 
have a warehouse full of merchandise. These people are in politics. This is all they do. So that when they're doing business deals with China, they're collecting money from China. And unless you believe that the Chinese are just giving money to the Bidens as a tribute, as out of admiration, I think the Chinese think they're getting something for it. But here's how you here's how we'll know this is serious. If they get pushed into the corner. Remember, Joe Biden's been around in politics since 1972, longer than some of you have been alive. If they get pushed into the corner, they will have, I guarantee they already have it, the names of Republicans who are also with their hands in cookie jars. So we, if we're serious about this, we have to be willing to entertain all the corruption, not just the one we want. You can't say, well, I just want to get Biden. It's important because Biden's president. It's important because he's the one making foreign policy right now, not these other people. But, but I mean, if, if, if this matters, you can't just be offended if one guy does it, right? Okay. Just wanted to get that across. 210-599-5555. I think they are, um, I, I think something is changing with this story, and part of it is probably the Republicans, but, um, this business of flipping from who knows where the laptop is or who knows if it's real to that's my laptop, you dirty bastards. You can't have that. You know, that, that sudden 180 means they're going to handle this differently. They're going to talk about it differently. Their minions in the media are going to talk about it uh, differently. This business with the National Archives. It's, it almost, it's almost, it's almost, funny to think of the National Archives as politicized, but here we are, right? 210-599-5555. And, and, you know, um, this is not like, when I think back to, like, the the Clintons, remember the Clintons? Remember Whitewater and foreign uh, entities making illegal campaign contributions? The Clintons were pretty... um, they were pretty wily. They were pretty slick. They didn't have as long as Biden, but I think they were better at it. Um, I, I don't think Biden's very good at it. I don't think his, I don't think his family is very slick. I don't think they're very good. I, I mean, Bill and Hillary Clinton would run circles around these people. So I, I don't put it past honest investigations to really catch them. I'm not getting your hopes up. I'm just saying I, I, there was a point we all, we all knew there was a point where the Clintons were going to get away with it and they were going to go into the history books and they have. I don't know if that's true in this case. I suspect it's not. I hope it's not. What do you think about all this? The coverage of the Bidens is changing and the way the Bidens are handling their hot water is changing. Let me play this for you. Now, if, if you made a list of the most shameless, bootlicking sycophants. I mean, knee pad wearing, worship at the altar, just weirdos. MSNBC's Chuck Todd would be on that list. I don't know if he'd be your number one, but he'd be in your top three. He does this thing called Meet the Press Daily. And this is something he said yesterday 
about the Biden document story. And just to hear these words out of Chuck Todd tells you the worm is turning. Cut number two. In fact, we got another reminder of the legal and political headwinds facing him when the FBI conducted yet another search of another house for classified documents that belongs to Joe Biden. This time, they searched the Delaware Beach House. The president's lawyers and the Justice Department say no documents with classified markings were found. Still, despite promises of transparency from the president and his lawyers, we haven't gotten anything close to it. We still don't know the full number or the nature of what the classified material that was discovered during these searches of his home and office or a decent explanation of how they got there. Mm. Chuck sounds like he's over Joe, doesn't he? You know? <laughs> sounds like he's sounds like he's moved on. All right, 210-599-5555. Diana is on 550 and 107.1 KTSA. Diana, good afternoon. Hi. Well, I, I agree with both of the things you've said. One, yes, they have their list of uh, Republicans are going to try to hush up or might be in trouble in similar ways, but not to right. the same degree my guess would be. Also, uh, many Republicans actually have worked in industry and business before they run for office mm-hmm. and, and the military. So I, I don't think you'd find to that degree Democrats who tend to be professional career politicians. But, yeah, the, it's hard to read the tea leaves right now, but I think there's a whole lot of people in the Democrat Party want to see Biden out and not be able yeah. to run. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, that's what we're starting to see in the media, a little change. So you've, you've got it nailed. You've got it nailed as you I, I think you're right, Diana. I mean, because if it was the other way around, if they, if they felt like they needed him or he was their future, they'd be in a different mode right now, um, and they're not. Circle the wagons mode. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think yeah. you're I think you're right about that. And um yeah, I mean generally it's, I think you're right. Generally there are more Republicans than Democrats who've done something else besides politics, but um just to give an example, in all in all the years I've done this, I I've lost count of how many politicians in both parties that have told us Saudi Arabia they they are great people. The Saudi royal family are fantastic people. They're really wonderful people. They're they're terrific friends of the United States. They're bulwarks. Uh, they're steadfast. And I mean, I'm not a I'm not a foreign policy expert. I just read some stuff. But um, and, and this is no knock against the people of Saudi Arabia. I'm talking about the the the, the royal family. Um, that that isn't true. Okay, so why would so many people, the Bushes? the Clintons, why are so many people in American politics fanboying over the Saudi royal family? Including, by the way, the guy we have as president now, who, when he was running, actually said that he had a problem with them and they would be ostracized, and then he went over there and bowed to them. You know, I I get they have oil. Okay, I know that. But I think there's more than the oil, if you know what I'm saying. Or to put it another way, I think they've given us more than oil. Know what I'm saying? Okay. 210-599-5555. What do you think about this? Um, and again, in case you've missed it, the, the, the way this cover up is unfolding is the National Archives have suddenly, uh, said they will not cooperate with the congressional investigation of the, uh, classified documents mishandled by Joe Biden. And Hunter Biden has now said, 
Uh, that is his laptop. The headline of the New York Post today is, It's Mine. Um, so now he's gone from it, it, it might be Russian disinformation, I don't know, to it's definitely mine, and I'm suing everybody who's reported on it. 210-599-5555. This was, this was funny. I don't know who did this. This went viral over the last several days. Somebody made a list. Um, it's one of these, we have to improve the way we say things lists. You know how much I love those. So this was called Evolving from Violent Language. Evolving from Violent Language. And you might think of yourself, you say, well, I'm not a violent person, Jack. I'm, I'm an easygoing person. But see, you use violent language without even thinking about it. Like, for example, have you ever said, um, shoot me an email? I do that all, I say that all the time. Or, she's a real straight shooter. Or, have you ever said this? I was taking a shot in the dark. Violent language. You are causing violence. You are triggering violence. Oh, I can't say triggering. I'm sorry. You are causing violence. (laughs) There's a whole bunch of them. So this was how you could replace those sayings. you got to hear this. Instead of saying, um, can you shoot me an email, you should say, can you send me an email? Okay. Instead of, I'm going to take a shot in the dark, you should say, I'm going to take a guess. Instead of saying, she's a straight shooter, say, she's pretty direct. Instead of saying, we're going to pull the trigger, say, we're going to launch. See, I think that's still violent, because that sounds like you're starting a war. I don't know. Let's put that one on the drawing board. Instead of, I'll take a stab at it, instead of, I'll take a stab at it, I'll take the first pass at it. Instead of, did we jump the gun, did we start too soon? And then there's one that made me hate this list so much. I love this list and hate this list. This is so, this is so bad. Instead of saying, that'll kill two birds with one stone, the writer of the list suggests, instead of that will kill two birds with one stone, you are to say, that'll feed two birds with one scone. And right there, right there we know what we're up against. That will feed, can you imagine saying that? Can you imagine using that expression unironically? That will feed two birds with one scone. Who are these people? Who are they? Who thinks that jump the gun is violence? Or bite the bullet? Or, you know, shoot you an email? I mean, you know, it's almost like you know, it's almost like we are pretending that we are children. When children have questions for adults, have you ever noticed that a lot of times their questions, and when children ask the question, we say, that's a good question. Because children ask if something is meant literally, right? And it's kind of cute. It's kind of charming. 
when kids take it literally and you 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 get to explain well that's a, that's a figure of speech that's something people say it doesn't really mean that you know don't bite the hand that feeds you doesn't really mean that these people are uncute children they have none of the charm of little kids asking wide-eyed questions they're just moronic adults seeking attention. And I guess I'm giving it to them by bringing this up. But I've seen this in a number of places. I wanted to make sure you didn't miss it because you want to, you want to start cleaning up your language, um, immediately. So that'll feed two birds with one scone. You know, I think if somebody, I'm going to say this. If somebody in my life used that expression, and I don't mean ironically or humorously because they heard this segment, but like thought that was a good way to put that. I don't think I could be friends with them anymore. You know, you know, this thing where people stop being your friend because you voted for Trump. Like I, I might have to say, you know what? You, you just died to me. You just, you, I, I don't, you, not I don't know you anymore. You, you, you're dead to me. And that would, of course, also trigger them because it would sound violent and the word trigger. So, I mean, what next? Do we have to sing everything to make it sound happier? Will that be the next thing? Like, oh, you know, direct, like conversational tones are very um, man-centric and uh, Western civilization-centric. And um, what we really should do is sing or chant uh, when we talk because that's more peaceable and, and, and less threatening. Maybe that'll be next. Or like maybe people with deep voices will have to speak through a filter that will make their voice sound higher and less threatening. How about people who are loud? You know, oh, well, he's, you know, he needs to speak softly. Loud voices trigger. I mean, not trigger, scare. Violent language. I'm starting to think maybe we need more violent language. I don't know. Is that am I okay to say that? If I mentioned earlier that. For me, the biggest drawback in having to cover the Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, laptop, classified documents story is that it's a constant reminder that we put these people in the White House. And I, that is just, you know, shameful. I'm, I'm not saying that because I have a policy disagreement. I'm saying that because these people are not worthy to what we have elevated them. And you get this sort of -of out-of-body experience sometimes where you're looking at what's happening, but then you step back and you go, I can't believe we're even having to talk about this. You know what I mean? I'll give you another example. The governor of Florida is signing a bill to hold people who perform sex change operations on children accountable. DeSantis said, this is sad, but it's going on in our society. They're giving teenagers, kids, puberty blockers. They're doing sex change operations. He warned that medical doctors in Florida, if they perform these procedures, will lose their medical licenses. He will not allow children to be exploited, said Ron DeSantis. If you're performing these procedures on these minors, you're going to lose your medical license here in Florida. And he talked about people who've reversed course after transitioning. And that um, 
Numerous studies have shown that gender dysphoria issues often resolve themselves on their own as children reach adulthood. Quote, the way to deal with it is to provide whatever counseling is needed, not to hack off their body parts. That is not a solution to the problem, DeSantis said. Can you believe that we're even talking about this? And I was thinking about being in school, you know, in the 1970s and 80s, being in college in the 1980s. Why didn't we have gender affirmation then? If you're honest, you will admit that when you were in school, there were kids. They may have been gay. They may have been lesbian. They may have been confused. They may have been closeted. They may have been open. Every school had somebody who was gender bending with their clothes or wearing eye makeup or what have you. Um... If anything, kids were harder on those kinds of kids then than they would be today. In other words, we were mean. We pointed out. We laughed at these kids that were different. And kids today are way more tolerant. Kids are way less discriminating or discriminatory than 30 or 40 years ago. So why do we now need so-called gender-affirming treatment? And, And I realize in asking this, somebody could say, well, you know, Jack, those kids that you're remembering back in the 70s and 80s had a terrible time they were having a very hard life as you point out they were being picked on so it's good that we are inclusive it's good that we are not doing that i agree i'm not saying we i'm not i'm not celebrating the way we treated them what i am saying is because we are being inclusive because kids are tolerant because our sons and daughters today don't look through the same eyes we looked through I'm not following the argument that, therefore, schools need to secretly work out pronouns and alternative names and gender identities. I'm not buying that kids need to be able to go behind their parents' back to receive treatment or even counseling. I'm not buying that we should be uh, proud of or see as progress that teenage girls with perfectly healthy breasts are getting them hacked off and then displaying their mastectomy scars the way 40 years ago a girl would have displayed with pride a new haircut or some new jewelry. This is crazy. You want to call me judgmental? Okay, I'll say it. This is crazy. This isn't progress. And so I support what DeSantis is doing. I, I wonder why there aren't other governors doing it. But I'm glad he's doing it. At the same time, as I report on him doing it or I read about him doing it, I have to think to myself, what? how did we even get to the point where you have to do this? So I'll talk about that. We'll go to the phones coming up, 210-599-5555. Uh, by the way, 
Speaking of DeSantis, if I had a nickel for every time somebody asks me, you know, when I meet people or just in conversation, the the, the number one question people ask me these days, what DeSantis or Trump, Trump or DeSantis, either who's it going to be or who do you hope it'll be or, you know, and, and not that they're only asking me. I mean, I think people that are into politics are asking each other this. It's not just coming to me. And, you know, lately I've started to tell people there is a more important question than Trump or DeSantis. There's actually a more important question than picking between those two men. Um, This balloon story is a very weird story, isn't it? The Chinese spy balloon over Montana. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I liked the explanation from the Defense Department. Uh, they were talking about the pros and cons of bringing it down. And they said they were concerned about the debris field mm-hmm. of a balloon. Hey, it's a big balloon. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, if like if you can't bring down an enemy aircraft because of the debris field, then haven't you just kind of given away the whole game? Kind of seems that way, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think, I think you have to, I think you have to kind of swallow that, you know, because, because I'm sure there's other stuff going on. I'm sure they're not giving us 1% of the whole story, but yeah. just saying, well, we don't, we don't think we can do it because of the debris field. Like, uh, what? Is that what we would have been saying in the 1950s if it was a, a yeah. Russian bomber? Yeah. 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 No. Or, or yeah, or in, in any time of war, yeah. Oh God, the debris! We can't be shooting down enemy aircraft. Think of the mess it'll make. Jack, so, it could okay. hit a deer in a field. It could. It could. It could affect um, some endangered uh, species or wildlife. It could affect a a wetland. <laughs> wetland. So you know what? Uh, I, I'm just praying that thing stays up there because uh, uh, you know anything is field. anything's worse than. Uh, then just leaving it alone. Leave it alone. All right, Jack Riccardi. So we, we've been talking about a bunch of different things here, and you can jump in on them at 210-599-5555. We were telling you about uh, the governor of Florida uh, trying to um, crack down in his state on surgeons and doctors who perform sex change operations or provide sex change medication to uh, minors. I am totally with him on that. Um, that is, it, it is surreal that we're even talking about this. But whenever you mention DeSantis or Trump, people start, well, which one do you think it'll be? Who are you for? And uh, what's going to happen in 2024? And, um, you know, here's the real question. You, you may have an opinion. You may like Trump. You may like DeSantis. You may like them both. You may hate them both. Tell you what the biggest question I think right now about 2024 is. The question is, what will Donald Trump do if he is not the Republican nominee? That's really what we need the answer to. I mean, time will tell whether the Republican nominee is Trump or DeSantis, or somebody else. Could very well be somebody else. History says that when you think you know two years out, you, you usually don't. 
that the people that were sure things two years before almost every election turned out not to be the one. Otherwise, we'd be remembering in the history books President Scott Walker or President Howard Dean or President Richard Gephardt or President Nelson Rockefeller. And none of those people ever became president. So anyway, back to DeSantis and Trump. The X factor is what will Trump do if he is not the Republican nominee? And the answer he's giving right now, when he's asked, if you don't get it, will you support who gets it? His answer right now has been, and he says it different ways, but his answer has been, it just depends on who it is. And I can understand that. But you got to understand what a big deal that is. You know, usually when you're the losing candidate for your party's nomination, there's some hurt feelings, there are some disgruntled supporters, and that's about it. But if this guy runs, and he apparently is running, and doesn't get it, which I think is a very real possibility, and he decides he doesn't support who does get it because he has a nickname for them or they're a rhino or whatever, then that that will be a, a very big deal. That will be significant. And And there are examples in our history of where that has split a political party so completely that it, it made victory for that party impossible. It's happened to the Republicans and the Democrats. We'll see. But I think if you want to, I I don't know the answer of which one it will be, but if you want to know what's important, what's important is what he does if he doesn't get it. 210-599-5555. And we were talking about what DeSantis is is cracking down on, which is this, uh, what they call gender affirmation care or gender affirming care. And I was just asking the question, if you can remember back when you were a kid, and I'm not trying to be cruel or mean at all, I I just want to have a a grown-up discussion about this and we can agree or disagree, but if you think about when you were in school and there were kids that were different, or whatever word you had for it, and I'm I'm not asking you to name any names or anything, but just, just I'm pretty sure we can all think back to boys and girls who thought they were girls or boys or wanted to dress that way or dressed a little bit that way or wore some makeup or didn't or, you know, whatever. We had terms for it. Some of them are politically incorrect now, but you know what I mean. Were we better off letting those people work through what they were working through and Let's see what adulthood brings. Let's see what time brings. You know, when you go to your reunion, right, your high school reunion, the 20-year one, let's say, it's the room is full of surprises, right? The people that were in great shape are now in terrible shape and vice versa. The people with the best hair are now bald. 
I mean, it, 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 everything is upside down and not what you would have expected. I shouldn't say everything, but there's, there's everywhere you look, there is someone who turned out very differently from how you remembered them in high school. And maybe you're that way. So we used to leave the passage of time to, to do whatever it was going to do with a boy or a girl who didn't like who they were or were conflicted or confused by the, their, their biological gender. So that's what we used to do. And now what we're doing is not only making available to them immediate surgical and medical treatment, but we're, we're enshrining it. We're saying that it's the, it's the ultimate act of love that parents who really love their children will bring them and get them this. And teachers that really care about their students will provide this even if the parents don't want it and go behind the parents' backs even if they... That's what we're saying now. So I'm asking, is that better? You think that's... Is this approach better? Is it kinder? Is it is it more loving? Is it more... Is it apt to... When we get to the the high school reunion in 2043 for the class of 2023, will we discover a bunch of people who are miserable, confused? Will they be there at all? When I think about being young, I think about how certain you feel and how really uncertain you are. You know, we joke about it, right? Oh, teenagers, they know everything. Why do they even go to school? They know everything. But, I mean, the truth is really the opposite. That's all bluster. That's all a, a, a front you put on as a teenager. You really don't know. You're shocked. You're, you're, you're terrified by how little you know. You know, uh, I have a daughter who's getting ready for college. And if you were to ask her, she'd say she's ready. And I, and I believe that she believes she is. But I also know, and I don't just mean this about her, but about any kid that age, there's all kinds of things that they're not ready for and not expecting and won't know, and they'll figure it out when they get there, but right now they don't know. And it's just, it, it is just stunning to me that any adult, whatever their political agenda, whatever their own story is or journey, would say, yeah, we need to provide mastectomies and surgeries and hormone treatments and and override the, the judgment of parents. Right. If they, because if they get in the way of this, we know better. We're the state. We're the school. We're... We're the AMA, you know, whatever. Um, 210-599-5555, talking about the, uh, what the state of Florida is doing about so-called gender-affirming care. Elizabeth is on KTSA. Elizabeth, good afternoon. Good afternoon. I guess I'm, my biggest concern about the transgender agenda is that it's a pharmaceutical issue. These people are put on medicines and surgeries for their entire life. Now, the benefit is to the pharmaceutical people. They want to make money. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't give any, uh, you know, kids want to have straight hair when it's curly, you know, blonde hair when it's mm -hmm. dark. 
And, mm-hmm. and you know, the tattoo removal industry is $500 million industry a year. And, mm-hmm. and you're going to put someone on medicine for the rest of their life and possible disfiguring surgeries. It just, you can't do that with children. They don't understand. So they do you think, have- you make a great point about the, the pharmaceutical profit motive. Do you think that's what's driving this? I mean, is that, is that the main thing that's driving this? I think so, but I'm, you know, I'm certainly not, don't have any proof, but they're right, the ones right. that must. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Because um, most people, and, and I mean, I don't know either, most people seem to think of it as more like a, well, we're remaking the society and we're trying to break up uh, the, you know, the bonds of the nuclear family because the theory, the deep thinking on this goes that if people are less attached to family bonds, then it's easier to manipulate them from a political or governmental standpoint, right? Like the quote-unquote community becomes your family. And I don't know if that's what's motivating this either. I don't know if it's maybe both Elizabeth and I are wrong. I, I will say to Elizabeth's point, it's a good point. It would be ironic if the left was embracing and endorsing something that was enriching big pharma because I'm old enough to remember when they were screaming at the top of their lungs about Big Pharma. In fact, the first time I ever heard the term Big Pharma, it had to be somebody like Bernie Sanders, right, or Ted Kennedy or somebody like that. I mean, th- this was their this was their rallying cry that everything pharmaceutical companies do is suspect and profit-driven and you need big government and regulation and so forth to protect you, to stand between you and these evil drug companies. And I knew a lot of people over my life who were politically conservative but agreed with the left on that point because of their own personal experiences with a drug that hurt them or didn't work or or a treatment that impoverished them or what have you. And now I look in recent years and I see the left basically running cover for Pfizer and Moderna on the vaccines. I see the left saying you must believe in science like it's a religion. Not not like it's a religion, it is a religion. And maybe Elizabeth's right. I mean, maybe this is also uh, about a lifelong dependency. You, in other words, the, the body you came with, the body with which you were originally equipped, uh, is going to need constant... Uh, treatment and selling that to people is yeah. There's there's a lot of money in that. I hate I hate to think we could be that craven, but we could be. I keep coming back though to the twenty year class reunion thing. You know, when you go to your class reunion, you see the people your classmates became. You see the the you know realization or the fruition. When you knew them in high school, maybe they were very sure about this or very sure about that, but 20 years later, reality has set in. <laughs> sometimes very, sometimes in a very humorous way, you know, the football quarterback, homecoming king is now pot-bellied and bald. But, but I mean, that's, that's what real life does. And you think to yourself, there was no way to, there was no way to know. Well, back when we were in school, there was no way to know how each of us would turn out. Now we can see it at the, 
20-year reunion or whatever it is. But now we're making changes at the school age that preclude the possibility of that evolution or that change or that, you know, coming to yourself. James is on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Hi, James. How you doing, sir? Yeah, I, I think any doctor and any parent that would allow this to an adolescent should be uh, child abuse. There's no reason a child should be able to make that decision before the age of 18. And if a parent makes it for a child before their age of 18, they're basically putting all this, what you're talking about, medicines for the rest of their lives and all, on that child who cannot make that decision. And I think both and the doctor should all be uh, up for charges of child abuse. Well, I agree with you, James. But, you know, if you look at what we're doing with so-called childhood nowadays, childhood really isn't a thing anymore. What's childhood? Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, the the leading voice in the world on the on the climate is a is a fourteen year old girl. Um, the, the the debate in Congress is over whether we should lower the voting age to sixteen or lower than that. So, in a society that worships youth and erases the distinction of youth and pretends that there's no such thing as being too young to know better. I mean that's gone. That's that's we don't we don't have that anymore. You're 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 too young to know better. You're too too young to make that decision. That's gone. In a society where we've eliminated that, we can call this gender affirming treatment. It's not only Orwellian, but it it means that we're saying you're as aware of yourself as you're ever going to be when you're twelve. Or fourteen, or fifteen, or sixteen—is that? Does that sound right to you? I mean, that sounds nuts, right? If I said that to you, like I believed it, you'd, you'd stop listening to this show. You'd say that guy does—that guy's not worth my time. I don't know why they have him on. You may be saying that anyway, but that's another story. But th- that's basically where we're at. That you know all you need to know before you are, as we used to say, of age. This is not to say you can't wear clothes, makeup, act a certain way, ask to be addressed by a name. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about the surgery and the medication. I'm talking about changing your body. I'm talking about doing things that are not reversible. Elizabeth mentioned tattoos. We're way beyond tattoos. If a tattoo is your biggest regret in life, you've done okay, right? One of the big political stories today that I'm really not that interested in, I'm going to mention it, uh, this was a big, big story like on Fox all day today. Um, the Republicans uh, had a vote, and they kicked Ilhan Omar, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, off the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Ilhan Omar is one of the squad members. She's obnoxious. They said they were doing it because of her anti-Semitic, anti-American uh, statements, of which she's made many. So I get that. It was a party line vote. All the Republicans were for, all the Democrats were against. This was just where my mind went. And you may think this is weird or crazy, but I actually think they took the wrong approach. Now that the Republicans are the majority party and by only a few seats, but even by those few, they get to, to make a lot of decisions and organize things. You know what I would do if I were them? I would find the most 
wackadoodle Democrats in their group, and I know that's a fierce competition, I would put the craziest, most far-left Democrats in the most prominent places you could. I, she definitely needs to be on that committee and any other important committee. I'd keep her busy with committees all day. You know why? Let them be the face of the Democratic Party. It's what they want. I think you're doing the Democrats a favor if you hide Ilhan Omar. I say shine the light on her. Not only would I put her on the committee, I'd make sure her microphone's always on and she has a comfortable chair and the lighting is good. And I'd put all those, uh, Ayanna Presley and AOC and all, uh, Rashida Tlaib. And any of these other whacked out, you know, the, the, the guy from Georgia that was afraid Guam would tip over, put them on committees. Don't deny them committee membership. Put them on the committee. Let everybody see how crazy they are. Does that make sense? I think you're doing the Democrats a favor. They, nobody wants to keep her a secret more than the Democratic Party leadership. So don't do it. 210-599-5555. Speaking of committees, they had a debate. I guess the theme of our show today is, can you believe this is even happening? They had a debate on the Judiciary Committee, which is now chaired by Congressman Jim Jordan, a man that owns shirts and ties, but no jackets. He does not own a jacket. Anyway, they had a debate about whether or not to say the the Pledge of Allegiance at the beginning of a committee meeting. And apparently they've voted to do that by party line vote. So the Republicans and the Democrats were arguing about saying the Pledge of Allegiance. Listen to how this went down. Cut number five. You're going to hear Matt Gates, the Florida congressman, first. Listen to this. And so my amendment uh, gives the committee the opportunity to begin each of its meetings with the Pledge of Allegiance. It gives our members the ability to invite inspirational constituents to be able to share and lead in the Pledge of Allegiance. I offered this amendment to the judiciary rules two years ago, and it was defeated, and I'm very optimistic that we'll have a different outcome today. That's the amendment, Mr. Chairman. I thank the gentleman for his amendment. Uh, Support the amendment. Does anyone seek recognition? Gentleman from New York, ranking member now. I would oppose it simply on the grounds that uh, uh, as members know, we pledge allegiance every day on the floor, and uh, I don't know why we ha- we should pledge allegiance twice in the same day to show how patriotic we are. As I said, we pledge allegiance on the floor every day. I don't think this is the most important amendment in the world, but uh, since we do pledge allegiance every day on the floor, I think it's unnecessary. Mm. Okay, hold the tape for a minute. Hold the tape. So that's Jerry Nadler from New York. He's like, oh, my God, we already say it once. This Pledge of Allegiance, do we really have to say it twice? Oi, you know, why? I can't can't believe you're going to make me say it twice. It's like they're making him, like they're making him finish his broccoli or something, you know? Oh, the Pledge of Allegiance, again with the Pledge of Allegiance. All right, and then the debate continues. Gentleman from Louisiana, is the gentleman get back? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Hang on. Recognize the gentleman from Louisiana, Mr. Johnson. I've not seen uh, Mr. Nadler on the floor when the pledge is um, is is done, and uh, most members are not present there, so it's not accurate to say we do the pledge every day or participate in the pledge every day. It may be offered, but you're not there for it. This is the work of the Judiciary Committee. This is the committee that has the charge of defending the Constitution and our fundamental freedoms and uh, defending the, the the very freedoms that the flag represents. And so it's it's a, a bit absurd to suggest we couldn't take 30 seconds at the beginning of this important work. 
to do what uh, should be done by all Americans. And so I think this is entirely appropriate. I wish we had done it two years ago, and I think we missed a lot of opportunities. I yield back. All right, so hold the tape again. Hold the tape again. All right, so that was uh, Mike Johnson. He's a congressman from Louisiana, Republican. So he's saying, why not just do it? And then this is the piece de la resistance right here. This is the Guam guy, the guy that thought Guam would tip over. Congressman Hank Johnson, Democrat of Georgia. He doesn't want to do it. Here's why. This recognition. <clears throat> Gentleman from Georgia, Mr. Johnson, is recognized. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I wish <laughs> two years ago that uh, on January 6th that the insurrection <laughs> never did happen. <laughs> so, I mean, he, he must just have a, an index card taped to the desk. You know, bring up January 6th. Just, just hit him with J6. I don't even know why they say the whole name of it anymore. They should just shout J6. Like, no. I vote J6. They're talking about saying the Pledge of Allegiance. And that was his response. So, you know, I'm not making light of the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, and I think that it has a place in places where we are actually conducting the business of this country. I do wonder sometimes if lightning will strike these members of Congress when they're saying the Pledge of Allegiance, because I'm not sure I believe the Pledge or the Allegiance, but uh, imagine that's a debate. Imagine that is, that's that's important. And even saying, I don't think this is a very important amendment, well, then just let it go. No. And imagine thinking, I've already said it once today, for crying out loud. Wow. Look at you. Public servant. We're asking you on the JR poll today about, because uh, this is Groundhog Day, uh, do you think Punxsutawney Phil is more or less um, reliable than TV weathercasters? What is your opinion? Do you think this animal that pops out of the ground once a year is more or less reliable. And he did, by the way, see his shadow and predicted six more weeks of winter. I, I, I guess it's in the eye of the beholder, right? Somebody actually studied this. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration uh, actually has statistics I don't know how they, I guess, I guess they're probably measuring like an official forecast against actual outcomes. Cause you couldn't, you couldn't possibly measure every TV weathercaster, every radio weathercaster, you know, that'd be impossible. But, uh, they say, their statistics say that uh, Punxsutawney Phil has only been right about 40% of the time over the last 10 years. So in um, 2020, 2016, 2014, and 2013, his predictions about winter came true. Is that better or worse than the people we get our weather from? I don't know. I don't, they're easier to look at, I will say that. <laughs> they, they dress better, but I don't know. We got stacks and stacks of wax and wax. We got the pick to click the ones to watch the oldies but goodies and oldies but gooies. We got the top 700 records. Next week it'll be a golden oldie. Let's hear it.
time to reunite with our good friend up in the great state of Maine. Uh, and uh, take your calls for him. Mighty John Marshall, the records guy. His website is moneymusic.com. And his address for the next uh, 20 minutes is right here. And, John, good afternoon. Happy New Year. Welcome back. How have you been? <laughs> well, Happy New Year to do. I've been great. I hope you are, too. Sounds like you're are you getting this? Uh, are you getting this winter <laughs> storm that I'm hearing about in the Northeast? Are you getting that? Yeah, tomorrow morning it's going to be uh, with wind chill 25 below and Saturday 50 below. Hmm. Okay. So. I'm going to stop complaining about our weather this week then in light of that. <laughs> I don't think we need to even bring that up. Uh, yeah. It's good to have you. For folks that have not heard you before, Mighty John Marshall is a, uh, is a guy that had a career in radio. He is a record collector. He uh, came up with the idea of helping people um, value and keep track of the value of collectible uh, vinyl records, which also has meant that he has helped educate people about which ones are actually collectible because it doesn't just become collectible if it's old. It doesn't just become collectible if it's uh, a recording by a famous artist. In fact, sometimes that's not the case. And so welcome back. And, John, for folks that have not heard you before and not seen the website moneymusic.com before, what are the categories or what are the criteria that make a vinyl record collectible? Well, everything is based on uh, rarity, the collectability of the recording artist, and the type of music. Overall, most of the value is in rock and roll, country, blues, soul, and jazz. And in those categories, most of the value is going to be in the Elvis era, the Beatles era, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. Uh, Not all of it, but that's where the majority of the money is going to be found. Mm. Um, We're going to count down... um the top 10 big money records for February with John as we take your calls and phone lines are open 210-599-5555 if you'd like to ask about an album or a 45 uh 210-599-5555 so coming in at number 10 we just heard it Louie Louie by the Kingsman one of the great party records of all time actually banned by the governor of Indiana at the time would not let Indiana radio stations play it It was investigated by the FBI because of so-called obscene lyrics, but that was not true. But the original Mm. Louis Louis on Jordan Records currently up to $250. All right. Um, Number nine, the Mamas and the Papas are collectible. Yes, known best for their hits uh, California Dreamin' and Monday Monday, found on the album If You Can Believe Your Eyes and Ears. Now, if you have this album, look at the cover. It shows the mamas and papas in a bathtub on the left, and on the right, there's a toilet. If the toilet is blocked off on the cover, no more than $25. But if there's a full view of the toilet, up to $250. (laughs) What what, was showing the toilet considered um, controversial? I think that was a good idea. Well, you know, not in the best of taste. They thought back in 1966, so they issued covers with it blocked off. Well, you know, and, and they were on Dunhill. They were on Dunhill, and I think Dunhill wasn't that part of a. That was part of a bigger company, um, uh, ABC. Yeah. ABC. So you know, I think yeah. back when like record companies were themselves very conservative organizations, like you know, Columbia Records was practically the, you know, the Knights of Columbus at one time. Um, right. They they probably were very prim and proper about all this stuff. It's funny to think now that a record company would would censor itself, right? <laughs> Well, 
today, no, they wouldn't censor themselves. No. Back then, uh, they did, yeah. Yeah, they, they, they had, you know, corporate offices of standards and practices and all that. Right. All right, number eight on the countdown with Mighty John Marshall, most collectible vinyl for February. Uh, number eight on the countdown is the soundtrack to The Green Hornet. TV show, The Green Hornet. Soundtrack, yeah. that's another category that can be quite collectible. Uh, the Green Hornet was around for a year on TV, but the soundtrack is currently valued up to $250. Why is this one so uh, valuable? Well, again, it was tough to find. It only lasted a year. It's got yeah. a lot of pop culture has a lot to do with it as well as far as collectability. And The Green Hornet and Batman and th- that type of thing is going to be collectible because of pop culture. All right, number seven on our countdown is uh, the Beach Boys' Cool, Cool Water. One of their lesser hits, Cool, Cool Water, didn't sell all that well, but the Beach Boys are collectible, and so it makes it worth up to $350, Cool, Hmm. Cool Water. For the 45. Yes. And we got another 45 at number six from the band Quiet Riot. Quiet Riot. Well, they were the first uh, heavy metal band to have a number one hit record, but this wasn't one of them. But it's a big collectible. Slick Black Cadillac by Quiet Riot. Current value up to $400. I have played that song on the radio. But I did not own it. Oh. <laughs> so. And I can tell you uh, that um, I'll bet it's rare because um, <laughs> a lot of people probably didn't think it was worth hanging on to. Uh, exactly. The, the, yeah. But you know, you, it's funny because w- when you and I started doing this, you very seldom would mention records from, you know, the, like late seventies, eighties, and they're right. starting to creep in there now, right? They are. Time is the great factor that increases value. Uh, in the record guides that we put out, people always ask me, "Do I have to buy a new one every year?" No. We generally don't see a price change for a three to four year period. So if you had one today you wouldn't need another one for about four years. So as we talk about this, and we're taking your calls from Mighty John, if you have a record you want to ask him about, 210-599-5555. It helps if you have it in front of you or you're holding it when you call, but either way, um, give us a call, and he'll he'll tell you what he knows about the value and the collectability of it. For people that, that have vinyl, but you know it's in a closet or it's in a cardboard box somewhere, what's the best advice until they do figure out if it's valuable and or sell it to somebody, what should they be doing with their vinyl right now? Well, number one thing I always suggest, if you do not have it uh, on your homeowner's policy or your renter's insurance, make sure it's there. I do a lot of work for insurance companies. If you don't have documentation as to its value prior to the loss or the, uh, the fire, whatever it may be, uh, it's tough to get full value. And it's very, very inexpensive to attach it to your homeowner's or your renter's insurance. Other than that, keep it away from heat, keep it away from moisture, store it at room temperature, store it like books on a shelf, not mm. horizontally piled on top of one another. Whenever we take calls for you, we always have somebody who is very proud of the fact that they have an album so pristine that they haven't even taken the plastic off, and you always immediately jump right in on that. Well, yeah, it's not a good idea to keep the album still sealed. Uh, you want to break the seal, but leave the uh, cellophane on. Because if you keep it still sealed, over time, that record inside will press against the cover because it's so tightly confined, and it will leave the record impression, the circular impression yeah. on the cover, 
and that can ruin the value of the cover, which in most cases is half the value. Yeah, there you go. Always laughing way down at me. Five fifty and one oh seven one KTSA. I always have to laugh when I hear this song, John Marshall, because I actually played this. This was in regular rotation at the last station I worked at that was a music station. Wow. And it was a it was an AM radio station, you know, one of those full service, we did everything. And the it was just because the program director liked it. I mean it you know, you know how research drives everything and li- there's no way that was a high research record <laughs> we, we played it every day and i i'm pretty sure by that time no one was playing it every day question mark in the mysterians 96 tears we're going to continue our countdown of the most collectible big money records for february with mighty john we're taking calls and questions for him via email jack at ktsa.com or 210-599-5555 uh, mark says that he has a lot of paul mccartney records and wondered which one's uh, either uh, McCartney solo or Wings albums are most collectible. Well, the one that stands out when you ask about Paul McCartney is the Ram album, and I tell you why: a stereo copy of Ram is up to about forty dollars, but if you find a mono copy, it's currently up to five thousand dollars. So mm. you want to check, and here's the way to tell: uh, it won't say it on the cover. You have to look at the record label on the record, and if it's in mono, it'll have black print that says monaural, which of course means mono. If you see that, that's up to $5,000. Mm. That's important to look for. That's a, that would definitely, I would scrutinize, I would put on some reading glasses for that. The Ram. Uh, Deidre writes to Jack at KTSA.com. I have a very nice, good condition copy of Pretzel Logic by Steely Dan. Is that collectible? Steely Dan, one of the great bands of all time, but yeah. not yet very collectible, most of their albums in that $10 to $15 price range. Yeah, I mean, plentiful, right? I mean, they all sold real well. People still have them. Uh, That was a great great album. That was the the Ricky Don't Lose That Number album, right? Yeah, great album. Any major dude will tell you. 210-599-5555 or jack at ktsa.com with a question from Mighty John. All right, at number five on our most collectible February records, Dion and the Belmonts. Well, doo very collectible overall. This yeah. one, Dion and the Belmonts, their very first album called Presenting Dion and the Belmonts, currently up to $500. Hmm, number four, Ronnie James Ronnie? Dio. I haven't heard his name Ronnie. in a million years. Yeah. Well, his first album was called Dio at Domino's. Copies worth up to $700. I bought that. Now, we did say earlier that uh, just because an artist was famous or legendary does not necessarily make their record or records collectible. But in this case, an Elvis record comes in at number three on your countdown. Everything by Elvis is worth money. This one, one of his last hits called Burning Love. Now, if you have a copy of this 45 on RCA... Look at the label. If it's orange, no more than $15. But mm-hmm. if the label is gray, then the value jumps up to $750. What's the, is the gray label the promo copy, or what is the deal there? Uh, no, no. Uh, far fewer of them were pressed in gray. Oh, okay. uh, the exact reason we're not sure, probably because depending on what pressing 
plant they were using, but most copies were on an orange label and not too collectible. But on a gray label, $750. Speaking of promo copies, and I know you've answered this before, but when people yeah. find a record that says promotional copy only or for radio play only, and they're all over the place, what does that do to the collectability? Well, promo copies, some of them can be much more collectible than the commercial copies sold in the stores, but it all depends on the collectability of the recording artist. For example, we have Elvis. Uh, he had a hit back in the 60s called Such a Night, a regular uh, commercial copy worth up to about $40. But the promo copy with those famous words, not for sale, uh, of Such a Night by Elvis, up to $8,000. Whoa. And if I remember from my DJ days, some record labels really did a very dramatically different design, like yes. different colors or no color. Sometimes there'd be no color. It would look like, you know, just black and white, like a generic right. for, for the promo. But then other record companies, the promo copy was identical to the one they sold in stores. You had to read and find maybe in very small print the word promo. Yes, or not for sale. Yes. Or not for it sale, yeah. Yeah, some companies did others like Columbia, they would change the color of the label and make big, big, bold letters, promotional copy, not for sale. And so you're right, some copies, though, of other record labels, you have to really look hard. Uh, speaking of your countdown, at number two is the song we just heard from 1966, Question Mark and the Mysterians, 96 Tears. I think they're only hit, right? They're only hit, Rudy Martinez, that was Question Mark. And the value was for the original label, Pagogo Records, 96 tiers, up to $800 right now. All right. And the number one most collectible uh, record for February on this countdown is Neil Diamond. Neil Diamond. This is a 12-inch single. It's called We Wrote a Song Together. He wrote it and recorded it for the uh, class that his son was in in elementary school. And they put out copies of it. And if you find oh. a copy, it's worth up to $2,000. Why was it a 12? Because usually 12-inch singles are like dance remixes or something. Was he was he discoing well, uh, it up in that day? Or? <laughs> no, it's not disco. But 1976, 12-inch singles were starting to come into their own. Oh, very interesting. Okay. Not everything um, disco. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I mean, I guess in my collection, if it's, tw if it's a 12-inch single, it's usually... <laughs> It, but now that now that you mention it, you're right. I do have some. I'm thinking of a. I have a few rock, twelve inch singles. They're not dance remixes. They're they're extended uh, mixes, or I guess they're extended singles for whatever reason. Like I I know I have a I have a Super Tramp one that's that's a twelve inch single. So I guess usually or more often than not, they had something to do with being dance mixes or extended mixes. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. We usually get questions, what about, and we haven't had any tonight, what about 78s? What's the deal with collecting 78s? Well, 78s can be collectible if they're in those collectible categories of rock and roll, uh, blues, jazz. The big collect category is blues records that came out prior to World War II. They're known as pre-war blues. 78s that are blues that came out prior to World War II, thousands of dollars for any of them so interesting be on the lookout for those uh sarah asks to uh, at jack at com. what are the most collectible sinatra records well he's overall not extremely collectible perhaps the most valuable one would be his first record on brunswick records called from the bottom of my heart and that's up to about fifteen hundred dollars 
Most of his albums on Capitol are worth up to around $40, and his albums on Reprise, which was his own record label, mm-hmm. are generally in the 15 to $20 price range. And I know you've made the distinction in the past that for some people, for some artists and for some people, sometimes there's a collectability for record collectors, but then there might also be a collectability for Sinatrophiles or, you know, Beatlephiles or what have you, right? Yeah, the fact that he was also a movie star, uh, there are collectors, you know, of movie star memorabilia, and Mm -hmm. to them it may have a different value than it would to a record collector. Right. Got another call in here. Our good friend Ken Slavin is calling in. Uh, with a question from Mighty John. Hi, Ken. Hi, Jack. How are you? We're good, good. Say hi to Mighty John. Hi, Mighty John. I've been enjoying listening to your assessment of these different records. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, well, Jack knows this, and a lot of my friends know this. I'm a huge fan and collector of Connie Francis records. And ah. I am very curious. I'm curious what your take may be on their, those most collectible. I have a lot of them in different formats, including some disc jockey records. Well, uh, there's probably more value in her uh, 45s than there is in her albums, especially the ones that came. Oh, I have a lot of those too. <laughs> yeah, good. Uh, like, uh, I'm sorry. I'm well, sorry. We're look- saying with the sleeves. Yeah, the sleeves are very, very important on any of her records. Uh, for example, um, My Happiness with a Sleeve can go up to around $200. Perhaps the most valuable 45 is If I Didn't Care with Each Picture Sleeve. That's up to about $400. So, uh, oh, wow, I got album- that one. Oh, good. But, but Ken, you can't, you can't sell Connie Francis, right? <laughs> no, I'm not going to sell them. I'm just, I was just curious. Yeah, no, you just want to know. Because I know, listen, I know how I know how near and dear she is to you, and, and I can't imagine you'd be like, well, now that I know that, hello eBay, right? That's not going to happen. <laughs> oh, well, no, most, not at all. I just... Her most valuable album is called The Songs of Less Reed. I don't know if you have that one, uh, but that's up to about yes, $250. Good. All right. Well, I... I appreciate that. Uh, I've had the great pleasure of becoming her friend. She just turned 85, and I've known her for several years, and Jack knows wow. the whole saga, but I love her stuff because I love stuff. I would never sell it. <laughs> yeah. She's a very yeah. unique very unique artist. Came along kind of at a very, you know, at a time when a lot of music was changing, and um, she kind of bridged, I think you'll agree, John, she kind of bridged like two eras of music, really, when she came along. Yes. Did you you know how the she, she recorded "Stupid Cupid"? Do you know how she came up with that song? Her father father told her, "Look, all the kids like really crazy songs. All these ballads are singing. Try something really crazy." And so Neil Sedaka wrote "Stupid Cupid" for her, and it was a hmm. big hit. There you go. Yes, yes, it was. <laughs> Ken, it's great to hear your voice. Thanks for calling in. Uh, appreciate it. Hope you're doing well. We'll talk to you soon. And John, before we run out of time, for folks that didn't get an answer or couldn't get to a phone. The website is moneymusic.com. What do they find on that website? So much. You can, we have tons of uh, free examples of what your records may be worth, and we sell a guide listing the values for over a million records. I will put on a flash drive now. It's so just pop into your computer, and you can look up the values for over a million records. Money music. So if you have a lot of them, that would be the thing to do. Definitely uh, get that. Go through your records at your leisure. Figure out what's what. 
figure out if you can part with it or not. And uh, Mighty John, always great to have you. I hope you'll come back again real soon. Thank you, Jack. Take care. You as well. And moneymusic.com is his website, Mighty John Marshall. I'm in a quicksand and I'm starting to sing. I need someone to help me, but I don't know which way to turn. I know I don't have much of a choice. I'll go out of my mind. I'll end Tomorrow night, we'll be talking restaurants on the dish. That's my plan anyway. Um, it, uh, it hopefully that will happen. That's what we do on Friday nights in our six o'clock hour. You can call in to praise or zing your most recent restaurant experience. It can be here in town. It can be outlying areas. It can be around South Texas. But praise or zing a restaurant experience on the dish tomorrow night. That's how we'll kick into the weekend. Um, two giants of the jazz world, uh, both masters of the saxophone happen to have birthdays today or birth anniversaries today that's what you say when they're no longer here celebrating the birthday this is the uh 94th birth anniversary of uh stan getz the great stan getz uh who was uh born in philadelphia and uh had i was talking to somebody about him off the air today and i was saying you know stan getz had like the prototypical jazz life he um had a meteoric rise uh he had a kind of stormy career um prolific these jazz guys played you know they they i think on average they worked way harder than rock bands do they played way more dates they traveled much more widely you know a rock band would tour the united states a jazz band would tour the world Anyway, he had a he had a, a a very tempestuous and busy career. Um, had dr- drug addiction, had uh, failed marriages. Uh, he had all the things that sort of stereotypically are associated with a jazz career, but was incredible. And we're going to play a record that is just one of my absolute favorite jazz records of all time. Here, coming up in a few minutes. This is also the birth anniversary of Sonny Stitt, who was born in Boston. 99 years ago uh, today. Also a great uh, jazz saxophonist and like Stan Getz played with all the all the greats and was a great and um, also had um, you know kind of a short life relatively. These guys um, they lived hard you know but they left behind so much great music. So we'll hear some Stan Getz uh, coming up at the end of the show, which is really just a few minutes from now. And we'll see how you voted on the JR poll about Punxsutawney Phil. And I saw this today. Now, I, I'm not a Frontier Frontier Airlines. Uh, I've never been on Frontier Airlines, but I'm aware of it. I know it's a discount airline. But listen to this. Uh, they are uh, starting a new all-you-can-fly summer pass. Says for $399, you get unlimited flights over the summer months. But you have to fly on Frontier. It's, no, I'm not making a joke. And the runner up gets two tickets. No, I'm not saying I'm making, making a joke. Uh, between May 2nd and September 30th, uh, wherever Frontier Airlines flies. 
But then it says, so it says $399. And at first I thought, well, what? that that seems like you're stealing it. But then it says um, you can also purchase extras like seats. And I thought, hmm, do they mean like seat upgrades? Or does this not include a seat? <laughs> like, are, are you standing in the back? So seats, bags, and other ancillary products may increase your price, says the company. It's on a first-come, first-served basis, so when they're gone, they're gone. It's kind of like it's the golden corral of airlines, right? You know, just fly all you want. And then they have a, another offer, which is $999, and that's all you can fly for a year. I'm just, I'm not, it's not a commercial, I'm just passing it along. Um, I read where um, JetBlue is trying to merge with one of the discount airlines. I don't have it in front of me. I don't remember if it was Spirit or which one it was, but apparently the politicians are trying to prevent JetBlue from doing that, and people in the who, who watch the airline business think that this is a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a hijink by the politicians because they may be trying to protect uh like Delta and American and what have you because if JetBlue acquired this discount airline it would be a more direct competitor to the sort of major top tier airlines and I guess so I guess that's why they're having trouble doing it but anyway um Last time I priced plane tickets, I realized that uh, I'm not going to be doing very much flying this year unless I do this Frontier thing. I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's where we're headed. Um, you know who Michael Strahan is, right? Michael Strahan, uh, one of the co-hosts on Good Morning America, sportscaster. Um, he recently uh, told a story um, about a friend. He was going to have dinner with a friend who's also a sportscaster, and they were going to go out on a Friday night, and this guy called him and said, I'm sorry, I can't do it. I can't make the dinner because his depression and anxiety had gotten the better of him, and his friend told him, the beast got out of the box on me. The beast got out of the box. And Michael Strahan told his friend that he wished they'd been friends their whole lives. He said, I wish you had told me this sooner. I wish you had to- I could have been there for you. You should have told me this 30 years ago, which is a very nice thing to say. But it's hard to do. Um, and I wrote about this today. You can read my column at ktsa.com about when the beast comes out, because I think this is a thing. I think we're surrounded by people who are functional and successful, and even we may even envy them for what they have or seem to have. There's a lot of people struggling with that beast. And Michael Strahan said to his friend, I wanted to be there for you. That's what we need to be for people. We we need to call people and not call them to give them advice on their beast or give them a book to read or give them a website or tell them they should consult a professional or send them a candle or a calendar with inspirational sayings. We just need to be there for each other. We just need to call people. You know what people need when they're when they're like this? I think what people need is you just talk about stuff. Not their stuff, just stuff. Talk about life, kids, sports, you know? Tell them what's going on. When people are wrestling with the beast, um, it helps to talk about anything but the beast. And if they need to talk about the beast, they'll 
they'll know they can come to you with that, and they will. But uh, that's what true friendship is. Don't don't try to fix the beast. Just like Michael Strahan said, just be there. And there's more at KTSA.com. All right, on the JR poll, we asked you, do you trust Punxsutawney Phil more or less of his prognostications than the TV weathercasters? And we got a split result right down the middle. 50% say they trust him more. 50% trust him less. New JR poll tomorrow or find it anytime at KTSA.com. And speaking of Groundhog Day, it's hard to believe this movie is 30 years old this year. Once again, the eyes of the nation have turned here to this tiny village in western Pennsylvania. Blah, 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 blah. There is no way that this winter is ever going to end. As long as this groundhog keeps seeing his shadow, I don't see any other way out. He's got to be stopped. And I have to stop. Real good, Phil. This is pitiful. A thousand people freezing their butts off waiting to worship a rat. What a hype. Not like they used to mean something in this town. They used to pull the hog out and they used to eat it. You're hypocrites. All of you. You got a problem with what I'm saying, Larry? Untie your tongue and you come out here and talk, huh? Am I upsetting you, princess? You know, you want a prediction about the weather. You're asking the wrong Phil. I'll give you a winter prediction. It's going to be cold. It's going to be gray. And it's going to last you for the rest of your life. Mm, I wonder if Bill Taylor ever has moments like that. Do you think he just ever occasionally? No, probably not. All right. Love that Bill Murray Groundhog Day. Uh, finally tonight, as I mentioned, it is the birthday of one of the greats in jazz, Stan Getz, the birth anniversary, I should say. And you have to hear, if you are not familiar with Stan Getz, the, the essential piece is his saxophone on this multiple Grammy-winning record from, well, it was made 60 years ago, as a matter of fact, 60 years ago next month. You're going to hear Antonio Carlos Jobim, who also wrote the song. You're going to hear the beautiful Astrid Gilberto, and you're going to hear the saxophone of Stan Getz as we go into the night on KTSA. Thank you. 
Mm-hmm.